0: Well, good evening everyone. It is so lovely to see you all here gathered online for the first of our summer school theme talks for 2022. This is the third year that we've offered these talks online. I know that we are in for a thoroughly stimulating and nourishing week of talks, and I hope that you will find a lot to inspire you in the next five evenings. This welcome comes to you on behalf of the summer school panel. In alphabetical order of first names, we are Jane Blackall, Kate Brady McKenna, Michael Allard and Nicola Temple. And we really do welcome you all. You are welcome no matter what. Whether you're joining us from your desk, your table, your sofa, your bed, your office, or the bus, or anywhere else, you are very welcome into this shared space. Whether you've been to all 10 of the previous online talks, whether you've been to summer school in person, or whether this is your first foray into Unitarianism, you are very welcome here. These theme talks are a sacred offering from the speakers. And they're offered as acts of worship as well as lectures. Over the next five evenings our five pairs of speakers will be offering us talks on the overriding theme of right relationship practicing love peace and justice in everyday life. Each session will probably be around an hour and 15 minutes Which gives the speakers more scope to go more deeply into their topics than they might expect to be able to do in a sermon. I'll be introducing tonight's speakers shortly, but first, there are some housekeeping notices just to help our time together run smoothly and to help in the creation of sacred space here online. You will probably have noticed that you are muted. Only myself and the speakers won't be. We've just found that it's very much easier for everyone if we don't have the distraction of the chat box going on. Individual speakers might decide to turn the chat box on for some periods during their talk. But if they do, we do ask you please to be mindful to use it only for what they've invited you to use it for. If you do have questions that come up, please make a note of them. And if you do still want to ask them after the talks are over, please contact the speaker and ask if they're happy for you to do that. Please remember, as I said, that these talks are sacred offerings. Subtitles are available. You should be able to, certainly if you're on a a pc you should be able to toggle them on and off at the bottom of your screen so if you might want to do that just play around with that for a moment and see if you can turn them on and off they are live automatic subtitles and they're getting a lot better even than when we started doing these talks but if you're horrified by something that comes up in the subtitles please bear in mind that might not be what the speaker said at all of course it might But it probably won't be. If you have any problems with the subtitles, let one of the panel know after the evening is over. The subtitles do tend to edit themselves after the event. So if anything gets a bit complicated, you should be able to clarify it on the YouTube video. An hour is a long time to sit still. So you do have our blessing to turn your cameras off whenever you feel you'd like to. And that includes keeping it off the whole time if you're more comfortable with that. If you do get up for a stretch or anything else, please just turn your camera off. Remember that we might be able to see you, even if you can only see the speaker. After the talk finishes, there'll be a five minute break just to make ourselves comfortable. And then we'll gather again to join in smaller groups to have some guided discussion on the talk. Not everyone likes breakout groups and some of us go cold at the very thought of them. So you do have our blessing if that's not where you're comfortable to leave at that point. The groups won't be monitored and they won't be recorded, but we very much hope that you will all be respectful and compassionate with one another. Also, if you need to leave during the session, then we completely understand that you will be able to watch the bits of the talk that you missed on YouTube. If at any point during the week you'd like a pastoral discussion with the Unitarian Minister about something which arises in the talks, then you're invited to contact either Reverend Michael Allerd or myself at any time between the session ending and 9.45 that night. You had our contact details in your invitation and we we'll, we will each keep our email open and our Facebook Messenger apps available please do bear in mind that this is for pastoral issues relating to the talks. This evening's talk will last just over an hour and it will be including a couple of musical interludes during which you're invited to ponder what you've just heard and allow it to settle into your mind. So if the music starts playing during tonight's talk, please don't think that the talk is over. You will know when it is. And so... Our theme speakers this evening are, again, in alphabetical order of first names, though it's been pointed out they're also in alphabetical order of surnames, Reverend Dr. Jane Blackall and Reverend Sarah Tinker. Jane, whose pronouns are she and her, is currently serving as ministry coordinator with Kensington Unitarians, where she's been a member for over 20 years, having completed ministry training with Unitarian College in 2021. Jane also practices as a spiritual director, having trained on the encounter course at the London Centre for Spiritual Direction. She previously worked in academic research in the field of medical image computing and radiological sciences then radically changed direction with a degree in philosophy, religion, and ethics. Jane has been involved in running Hutto Summer School since 2005 and is fanatical about the power of engagement groups, including heart and soul, and adult religious education, such as how to be a Unitarian, to transform lives, communities, and the world. Jane identifies as fat, queer, demi-bi, cockney and a highly sensitive person. In between work, study, looking after her dad and mucking about on the internet, Jane enjoys gardening, bird watching and jigsaws and is a keen armchair spectator of cycling. Sarah writes, I'm one of the fortunate people who attended the first Hucklow summer school back in 1995 and I'm grateful to be still actively involved with Unitarianism and Unitarianism and still passionate about the value of gathering together in small groups to explore our faith and our lives. Now retired from Congregational Ministry with Kensington Unitarians, I'm enjoying getting to know the Essex countryside and coastline and developing an enthusiasm for birdwatching. Exploring this year's summer school theme of right relationship is encouraging me to think more deeply about my ways of being in the world and so now i invite you to take a couple of breaths to settle yourself into a spirit of sacred receptiveness and community and i'm going to pass you into jane and sarah's hand.
1: chalice
2: lighting comes with words called the nurturing light written by simon john barlow by the light of this chalice let us recall the nurturing light of god which infuses uplifts and unites all creation let us celebrate the nurturing light of humanity which urges us to choose the paths of goodness to seek our better selves and let us celebrate the nurturing light within which awakens deep in our being illuminating all the possibilities of who and what we may yet become as we uh, gather for this first summer school in 2022 the first talk let's join together now in a time of prayer Settle yourself however best works for you. Spirit of life, God of all love, in whom we live and move and have our being. As we turn our attention to the depths of this life, the cosmic mystery and wisdom that abides in all that is, we tune in to your presence within us and amongst us. Since we last gathered together for summer school a year ago, so much has happened in each of our individual lives and in the common life we share with all humanity and all those fellow creatures for whom this precious planet Earth is home. So let us each now individually take a moment to think back over the year and all it has brought us. Times of struggle, and suffering in our own lives and the life of the world
1: and those moments of joy and celebration that still somehow managed to break through and as we set out
2: on another summer school week together seeking to what it to understand what it means to live in right relationship. We ask for a blessing on our searching and discernment. Let us share a few moments of silence and stillness now, as we prepare our hearts and minds
1: for a week of learning. Spirit of life, God of all love,
2: ground of our being, we gather in reverence and thanks in honour of all that is
1: of ultimate worth.
2: We are grateful for the gift of another breath and for each moment of connection, of beauty and of truth.
1: Cry with us in our pain for this troubled world. Remind us that we are loved just as we are. Remind us that we are connected with all that is. Remind us that we do not journey alone.
2: Give us what we need for today. Call us back to our promises, commitments, our values. Help us love ourselves and each other. To show that love in our actions. Make us instruments of justice, equity
1: and compassion. Free us from all that is evil. For we declare...
2: That life and love are stronger than tyranny and fear. That a world of beauty and love is coming. And we must shape
1: it together. Amen. Our reading
3: is from Sean Parker Denison. And it's called To Invoke Love. To Invoke Love is to ask for a hug from a thunderstorm. Spill tea in the lap of the infinite trickster to make the biggest, most embarrassing mistake of your life in front of everyone who matters. To invoke love is to never know if it will come softly with the nuzzle of a beloved dog or pounce right on your chest with the strength of a lioness protecting her cub, her pride, her homeland. To invoke love is to take the risk of inviting chaos to visit the spaces you spent so much time making tidy and watch as the breath of life scatters everything you've only just folded and put away. To invoke love is to allow for the possibility that your words and actions might become so empowered you can no longer believe in apathy or the self-righteous idea that nothing can change. To invoke love is to give up self-deprecation, false humility, pride. To consider yourself worthy to be made whole. Willing to encounter love that will never let us let each other go. To invoke love is to guard against assumptions. Take care with our words and practice forgiveness. Not as ethereal ideal but right here in the messy midst of our imperfect lives. To invoke love is to approach each day and every person with wonder, anticipating love's arrival. Is this the moment? Is this love's grand entrance? Is this person the embodiment of love? Am I the one? To invoke love is to play the fool, the one more concerned with loving than with appearance or reputation, the one ready and willing to be vulnerable, abandoning anything that gets in love's way. To invoke love is to be ready to become love, here, now, in everything we do. Are you ready?
1: Well, are we
2: ready? We get to sing a hymn together now. And uh, yeah, we've got a sing, uh, hymn to sing at the beginning of this uh, theme talk evening and we've got one at the end. And I've just looked to see there is a hundred of us here together and it makes me very sad that I can't actually hear you all singing. But we'll all be muted so you can make as much noise as you like or you could sit back and just enjoy the recording. It's going to be called The uh, Tides of the uh, Spirit and um, it's going to
1: appear on our screens. Enjoy.
2: summer school panel, I reckon this year, have come up with the ultimate topic. Right relationship, hmm, it's all in there, isn't it? Life, the universe, the whole caboodle, expressed in that pleasingly brief concept. We searched to find the origins of this terminology, and though we can't be sure, it does seem to have appeared first in writings connected with the Society of Friends. Well, not surprising, as Quakers have long encouraged one another to reflect on their relatedness to other human beings, as well as to God. We have to thank them for the ever useful injunction, recognize something of God in everyone you meet, which some of us use as a guiding principle to this day, I reckon. In Unitarian circles, I've uh, heard that restated as recognise the spark of divinity in all that exists, widening this circle beyond all human beings, simply human beings. And the Sufi guidance of this too is me. That's something I'll come back to later on. The term right relationship reminds me too of the noble eightfold path of Buddhism where three aspects of Buddhist life, that's ethics, meditation, and wisdom, are expanded. Established way back, I think, in the 5th century BCE, some of these edicts sound so modern. Maybe they can help us in guiding life now. Right action. Right speech, which means speaking truthfully. Right livelihood. Earning a living in a way that doesn't harm others or cause suffering. Right mindfulness, being aware of yourself and the emotions of others. Right effort, right concentration, right view and understanding. Remembering that actions have consequences and right intention, which means being clear about following the Buddhist path, but surely can have a wider meaning for us. Right intention. What is the meaning behind what we do? So again, I'll be coming back to this idea of guidelines for our relating later. But, you know, this fact that we have such clear guidelines from ancient times is a sign, I think, that the issue of how we get along with one another, that has been around as long as members of our species have been living together. And no doubt our earlier kindred too we are clearly relational creatures aren't we we depend on one another we'll have been dis- establishing rules and guidelines about how to live with one another since those earliest days of communicating is anything different in the 21st century well maybe not though in some count- in some societies the unfettered rule of power and force challenged in ways that would not have been possible in centuries past and we could argue couldn't we that the remarkable development of social media as a means of relating digitally has brought us many many new issues to consider as well as many possibilities for new ways of relating in western societies such as britain we have certainly seen a notable shift in attitudes towards authority A growing awareness and distrust of hierarchical relationships where someone gets to hold the power simply because of the badge they're wearing. So here we are in 2022, a little gathering of Unitarians. And we're asking ourselves, how might we establish right relationship? How might we best practice love, peace and justice in everyday life? This evening, Jane and I are particularly focusing on relatedness with ourselves and with others. And, you know, I may as well break the bad news to you sooner rather than later. Although looking around rooms, I can can imagine that actually this dawned on you a lot sooner than it dawned on me, that there is no static, happy ever after whoop-de-doo in right relationship state to arrive at and then we can all relax. Mm
4: -hmm. Like
2: balancing on a bicycle, in our relatedness we'll be forever in movement. Readjustments, both subtle and large, will forever be required of us. And although in this first evening we're exploring the personal elements of right relationship, we also need to establish, I think, that every element of human existence is interconnected. Ethics, the legal system, Economics, politics, world affairs, the natural world, and environmental crises all play their part, as does history. We can't forget that through much of human history throughout the world, people have been treated differently. Because of gender, because of race, because of age, because of social class and economic status, to mention but a few of the myriad ways that we humans differentiate between ourselves. Taking just one example, it was only in the 19th century in English law that the slow path towards women being regarded as equals with men began. Children were regarded then as the father's property. Married women had no rights of their own property. The dissenting voices became louder, campaigns were fought and eventually led to changes in the law. Slowly greater gender equality was established, which led eventually to women gaining the right to vote, etc., etc., etc. You know the story. But well we still have a gender pay gap in the 21st century. Women in the UK are paid 90p for every one pay one pound paid to a man. I managed to work out that's a 10% differential. And uh, yeah, the statistics on violence towards women will horrify us all. It can be painful, can't it? To realize how much further we need to work towards equality and to recognize that humanity steps forwards can so quickly slide backwards once more when there is regime change. I'm sure we'll all be thinking of places where that is happening. So legal systems and economics are crucial aspects of relatedness. Yet in this area of personal relationships that we're considering this evening, aren't we hoping that each individual will take some responsibility for right right relationship? It's worth um, mentioning the work of Martin Buber here, a prominent 20th century philosopher, religious thinker, political activist and educator, his most famous work explored two ways of human relating to our world, which he named as I, thou and I, it. Both forms of relating are needed in human existence, explained Buber. In I, it relationship, we're relating to people and objects through their function. Only in I, thou relationships is true dialogue possible, true sharing, no masks or pretense. But Buber was clear that such connections were inevitably fleeting, that we move in and out of I-thou relatedness, that it can never be constant or static. And I'd add that such depth of relating, it's both potentially wonderful and exasperating. It's certainly not easy, is it, to interact authentically, particularly in ongoing relationships, alas. Isn't that where love needs to be invited in again and again and again? I smiled when Jane read that um, piece about invoking love earlier on. And the description of love not arriving in the form we perhaps hoped for. I wonder if that's ever happened to you.
1: Uh,
2: To invoke love is to never know if it will come softly with the nuzzle of a beloved dog or pounce right on your chest with the strength of a lioness protecting her cub, her pride, her homeland. Those words by Sean parker Dennison. In the realm of personal relationships, you've probably already noticed things rarely go quite according to plan.
3: So, what do we even mean by right relationship? Seeing as that's the theme of the whole week, I thought we'd better stick the gnarly question on the table on day one. To speak of right relationship implies there is such a thing as wrong relationship, and you have to imagine a great big grey area in between, which is the space where most of us live most of the time. People, especially liberal-minded people, can sometimes be a bit allergic to the very notion of right and wrong, a bit averse to any hint of moral absolutes, a bit inclined to moral relativism perhaps. And of course that is the territory we're in when we talk of right relationship, we're talking about morality and ethics, perennial questions like how should we live or in any given moment or any given situation, what should I do? The very presence of the word should in those questions implies the existence of a moral or ethical norm that we're holding ourselves to. The idea that there's a right answer to such questions and the wrong one or perhaps there's a whole spectrum of answers that could somehow be graded on their degree of rightness or wrongness ethics and moral reasoning is an enormous topic and my intention tonight is not to get bogged down in the academic side of things though i did do a bit of study in that field the scholarly side of ethics which speaks of utility duty and virtue it is quite fascinating to explore and reflect on But it can be hard to join the dots between such theoretical moral calculations and the way we choose to act each day, how we actually live our lives in messy reality. Even if, in principle, we lean towards one of these theoretical approaches to ethics, working out what it means for our conduct, the right thing to do in any given moment, that is by no means straightforward. Our lives are interwoven in such a complex web of interdependence. Each move we make or fail to make in any moment, can set in motion a chain of events with infinite reach and unknowable consequences. Think of the butterfly effect. You would have to have a God's eye view of the entire universe to be able to truly weigh up the impact of every action before you make it. And as an aside, this puts me in mind of a splendid little routine from the comedian Bill Bailey. Some of you may have seen it. He talks about a typical exchange of greetings between British people. How are you? not too bad all things considered when anyone says not too bad all things considered bill bailey says he wants to reply what you've considered all things the tectonic plates inching around the planet mocking our brief dance on the surface everything that's ever existed at a molecular level the uncountable stars the boundless universe beyond which our imagination found us on a distant shore that is a highly abridged version of five minutes of escalating absurdity featuring marmite, manatees, Franz lips and the tears of a Patagonian shepherd. Clearly, I can't do justice to Bill Bowley. Do look it up on YouTube for the full joyful experience. Point being, we can't really consider all things when it comes to making ethical decisions in everyday life. So if this sort of moment to moment moral calculus is a bit of a non-starter, how do we really make our everyday ethical decisions how do we judge what right relationship means in practice i'm mindful of the words of the philosopher james griffin from his work value judgment improving our ethical beliefs he writes we inherit our ethical standards we start our moral life with firm views about right and wrong some so firm that they are never shaken still in time we start rejecting others of them we do not just change our minds about them we also find them faulty in some way unjustified out of date too undiscriminating we regard our new ethical beliefs as not just different but better much moral philosophy should be seen as a continuation more self-conscious and more sustained of this project of improvement that all of us are engaged in before we've ever even heard of philosophy Our ethical standards are hand-me-downs and sooner or later we start criticizing them how should we go about it those words from the moral philosopher james griffin so like he says none of us work out our ethical standards from first principles we absorb them from family culture and peers some we cling to unquestioningly some we examine and retain some we reconsider and reform some we outgrow and reject altogether plenty of what's passed on will stand the test of time but i hope as individuals as a community in society we do have it in us to reflect and grow many people present here tonight will have witnessed huge shifts in society in their own lifetime for example homosexuality was illegal not so long ago in this country anti-gay sentiment was absolutely the default in our society when i was at school and for a fair bit longer now, on the whole, the consensus has moved on, thank God, to the point where same-sex marriage is a thing. And on the whole, on the whole, people can be safely out in many spheres of life. But I need to acknowledge that we are facing a significant backlash to this progress around the world right now. Nevertheless, we should expect our moral principles to evolve and change as we integrate new insights gleaned from our collective experience. I find myself thinking of the well-known quote from Maya Angelou. I did then what I knew how to do. Now that I know better, I do better. I would venture that perhaps the longer we've held on to a certain moral precept, the more ingrained it will be into our very sense of self, and the harder it will be for us to revise it. What does it say about the person that we were before? You might feel a sense of shame about our previous outlook, and that can be a very powerful force, resisting necessary change there's a great deal of moral courage involved in coming to the conclusion that some long-held moral principle of ours was misguided mistaken or just plain wrong and changing our view and our conduct accordingly and in addition to these internal dynamics we can find ourselves almost trapped in a certain moral worldview by tradition peer pressure pressure social norms and misguided notions of common sense just because it's normal doesn't mean it's right this is one of my key messages this evening i can hear a thousand mums saying just because everybody else is doing it doesn't mean you should a lot of ways of being with each other in our society today are in my view a million miles away from right relationship but harmful conduct often goes unquestioned or is even celebrated just because we're used to it and it's the way things are and the way they've always been Every day of our lives, we see cruelty, exploitation, bullying, neglect and carelessness all around us to varying degrees, at least if we're paying attention. There's bad behaviour in workplaces and schools and, yes, churches. In the media, it's often excused, minimised or passed off as entertainment. On social media, which has a reputation for being a cesspit and where I was only joking, can't you take a joke, is used to excuse all manner of nastiness. In so many settings, harmful conduct is too often accepted, normalised, perpetuated, even reinforced by institutional structures and social norms. But so often we prefer not to speak of it, not to name what we've witnessed out loud, not to cause a fuss, not to be the awkward sod who initiates the difficult conversation about harm. And really, this is understandable. There may well be negative consequences to speaking up. There have been some laudable high profile campaigns recently where behaviour that was previously widely considered socially acceptable has been challenged and perpetrators have been called out for the harm that they've done. I'm thinking particularly of the Me Too campaign initiated by Tarana Burke, which raised awareness of the prevalence of sexual harassment and assault, particularly in workplaces. It was and it is going on everywhere and everybody knew. It was almost a cliched running joke in every TV sitcom of my childhood. But it's only now that the tide slightly seems to be turning. It is taken seriously as being a wrong thing, rather than just laughed off and dismissed as something that only bra-burning feminists were concerned about. All of which to say, the first step in cultivating right relationship is to question everything don't just assume the right thing to do or the right way to be is obvious or common sense or that is what everyone else is doing don't just default to going with the flow in order to fit in socially and i realize that's a bit paradoxical paradoxical because going out on a limb socially does somewhat make it harder to be in relationship at all but if we're framing this in terms of how to live right discerning how to act more ethically we're talking about reflecting on our way of being in the world rather than living on autopilot and as we heard from james griffin earlier this will quite likely involve deconstructing and discarding some of the habits of thought and action we've inherited and going our own way and we can't stop there it's not enough to reject what's gone before having deconstructed we need to reconstruct if we discern that some or all of what we've inherited is wrong Then the next step is to work out what we're going to put in its place, rather than leaving a moral vacuum. What are our moral commitments? And what values, principles or foundations are they based on? One of the key purposes of church life, as I understand it, is to be a community which reflects on ethical questions such as these which holds up values principles and moral teachings a community in which we hold each other accountable in striving to know better and do better of course a church is more than an ethical society but it is one important aspect of what we do in communities such as ours it can sometimes seem as if we lack enough shared reference points to come to consensus about what's right and wrong We Unitarians frequently speak about the importance of each person searching their own conscience. I had a look at Cliff Reed's classic little text, Unitarian, what's that? and found no less than 10 mentions of conscience in that relatively slim volume. Just a few excerpts. He wrote, we hold that all people have the right to believe what their own life experience tells them is true. What the prompting of their own conscience tells them is right on all issues of personal conscience each unitarian is free to come to his or her own conclusions without fear of judgment or censure a unitarian view of sin might be to sin willfully is to act speak or even think in a way that one's own conscience condemns as wrong to be a unitarian is to take responsibility for one's own faith It's to value the intuitions of oneself and others it is to test one's beliefs against reason and conscience is to afford others the same right to be honest with their own inner authority as one claims for oneself words from cliff reed so conscience is actually a big deal for unitarians but conscience can be a slippery concept and am i being too cynical occasionally i wonder if people use the appeal to conscience as shorthand for i'll do what i like thanks very much and just use it as a form of self-justification without actually doing the necessary deep reflection to back it up when i was studying with the jesuits at heathrop college a few years back i was introduced to a way of thinking about conscience that shaped my understanding of the concept ever since briefly as i understand it the idea is that we don't just get born with an oven ready conscience conscience must be formed and informed formed and informed Conscience is crucially formed in community. We draw on many sources of moral wisdom over time to form our conscience. That is, to develop our capacity for accurate perception, reflection and analysis of moral matters. And this goes back to what we've already considered, sifting through our moral inheritance and the cultural norms we've picked up to see what's worth keeping and what we should chuck away. And then, in any given situation, conscience requires us to be properly informed. To find out all the relevant facts and to discard what is irrelevant, distorted or plain untrue. So that our conscience has got good data to work with when discerning the right course of action. To live by conscience is demanding. But to nurture our conscience, that is to cultivate a place within where the voice of God might be heard. And that's how I conceive of it, I think, this notion of right relationship. It's about aligning our way of being in the world with some north star which guides us towards love and truth and beauty. It's about reflecting on our way of relating to self and other, including other creatures, the natural world, our planet and the entire universe and reaching out towards the greater good. For me, that north star is something that I'm happy to name God, but you might choose to name it differently. Still, however we conceive of it, We still need to discern what is required of us in each moment, what God requires of us, what love requires of us, what justice requires of us in order to live in right relationship or something a bit more like it with self, other and God in our everyday lives. Even our best attempts at sincere discernment will rarely result in conclusions we can be 100% certain and confident about, so often we'll have to make a leap and act before we're really sure. So perhaps we should just aim as best we can to do the next right thing perhaps bearing in mind the wise saying from ignatian spirituality each of us can only discern for me for now for good
2: Some of us humans, oh, we put a lot of effort, don't we, into discerning how we should best behave in relationships with others. Just take a look at those shelves filled with self-improvement titles in bookshops or online. And I suspect that quite a few of us will have come away from time spent with others and chewed anxiously over what we or they said or did Or how we could have handled things better. Not surprising then, is it, that human groups and societies create laws, rules, guidelines to try and help us establish right relationship. I mentioned the uh, Buddhist Eightfold Path earlier on. And then we have Moses, don't we? Staggering down the hillside with the Ten Commandments. And then we have Jesus' graceful uh, response when asked which was the greatest of those commandments jesus replied love the lord your god with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind this is the first and greatest commandment and the second is like it love your neighbor as yourself all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments You'll know probably that various cultures and religions have developed versions of what became known as the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. As a religious education teacher back in the day, a happy lesson could be spent exploring the many versions of this rule and designing a poster illustrating all the ways we could treat people nicely but there was usually at least one thoughtful teenager in most classes who would query whether everyone on this planet would actually want to be treated as we want to be treated. Aren't we all different? And of course we are. The so-called platinum rule, platinum being considerably more valuable than gold, apparently. The platinum rule has been variously attributed and suggests that we treat others they as they would wish to be treated. We treat others as they would wish to be treated. It's certainly an improvement because it elicits an empathic response to the other person. It actually requires us to be interested in them rather leaping to assumptions about how they would like to be treated based on our own preferences. We need to discover through dialogue what the other person wants and needs. But of course, that has problems too. Some people would want to be treated in ways that aren't actually in their best interests or the wider groupings' interests. People's yearnings have to be balanced, don't they, against the wants and needs of others? So, laws about relationships can be very helpful indeed in protecting us. Rules and guidelines—they can be useful ways of clarifying required behaviours in particular settings. But all such codes, they've got limitations and drawbacks. And when we enter the area of personal relationships, we are stepping into a space that has little clarity about the rules. It's open for negotiation. No wonder we sometimes get into a mess. I've long had pinned on my notice board this little statement that some of you might also have come across. I know that you believe you understand what you think I said, but I'm not sure you realized that what you heard is not what I meant. It makes me smile in rueful recognition of just how very tricky communication in our relationships is. So tricky that I can't actually imagine ever claiming that I was in right relationship with anybody. I think the best I'd ever say is that I And others, we're fumbling around, trying to communicate effectively with each other, trying our best to understand each other, doing what we can to just express what's inside us, how we're thinking and feeling, what our hopes and dreams currently are, alongside our fears, our anxieties. So working on our communication skills has to be the key way, I think, in which to build right relationships. And what might that look like? Probably different for each of us. But for me, I have to overcome blocks of niceness. Blocks that are anxieties about upsetting someone. A block that's a fear of the other and what I might hear back from them. And I have to carve out time to actually be with the other person because communication takes time far longer than I'm often ready to give it building relationship requires me to lean in towards the other person rather than backing away when there's a difficult situation I'm most of it pretty quick to back off when things get difficult or heated or awkward and embarrassing fill in your words here for the personal situations that you dislike the most a fellow Unitarian, Michaela von Britsker, she wrote a while back now of the need for sturdy intimacy in our church relationships. Sturdy intimacy, isn't that a great phrase? Sturdy intimacy in church relationships as a way to overcome the somewhat shallow, superficial niceness of our culture. And along with that sturdy intimacy, we've got to develop our skills of, curiosity, gentle questioning of expressing our interest in another person. We have to be able to express our confusion and to seek clarification. We have to rein back our assumptions and any illusions that we can read another person's mind. And when we develop such skills, we can help the other person self disclose We encourage them to tell us something of themselves, to express their vulnerability. This ability to tell others something intimate about ourselves is one of the first planks of that bridge we're hoping to build between ourselves and another. It's saying, I'm here, I'm vulnerable, like you, I'm interested in you, tell me more let's not forget that when it comes to personal relationships we do need to be awake to the differences between us in terms of power and privilege and that's not said in any way to put us off seeking relatedness with people who are different from us because that's exactly what our world needs isn't it more of us getting to know people who are different from us But when some of us already have a more established place in the world, when when life is stacked in our favor, then I reckon it's our job to stay
1: aware. To invoke love
2: is to give up self-deprecation, false humility, pride. To consider yourself worthy, to be made whole. Willing to encounter love that will never let us let each other go.
3: My first encounter with this phrase, right relationship, was, if I remember rightly, just over 20 years ago. I came across the concept when Tandeka, a Unitarian Universalist minister and theologian, visited our General Assembly annual meetings to give the Essex Hall Lecture back in 2002. In that lecture, Tandeka introduced the notion of engagement groups to Unitarians in the UK as a very particular way of gathering people together in small groups within our congregations. These groups are also known as covenant groups or small group ministry. I think there are another number of variations on the theme that they're known by. And when they're run properly, they're transformational. Indeed, the heart of summer school, when we're able to gather in person up in Great Hucklow, is built around these engagement groups. So I'm positively evangelical about this sort of small group work. But take note, not every small group is an engagement group. You can't just stick a dozen people in a room, whether it's in person or on Zoom, and call it an engagement group. No. The defining characteristic of an engagement group is its particular purpose and intention. The way the groups are formed and framed and facilitated is all with that purpose in mind. And for 20 years now, I've been repeating this purpose over and over to myself and anyone else who will listen. The defining purpose of engagement groups is to bring people into right relationship with themselves, each other and God, or that which is of ultimate worth to you. Now, I know some people, probably quite a lot of people here tonight will be pretty familiar with participating in engagement groups or even leading them. But I expect there will also be plenty of others for whom the concept is new. So there's a very abbreviated introduction to engagement groups. I'm going to share a description adapted from the Covenant Group source book produced by the Centre for Community Values, which I think was an institute founded by Tandeka. An engagement group is a small relational group of up to 12 people who meet regularly to establish and nurture themselves in their own beloved community. Such groups provide an opportunity for group members to build strong relationships with each other and with the larger organisation of which the small group is part. Members may tell their life stories, offer support and engage in work to serve the larger community. Engagement groups offer expanding opportunities for growth, caring and connection within a congregation. Members experience a relational individuality which affirms the inherent worth and dignity of every person. People experience themselves and each other as part of the interdependent web of existence of which we are all a part. Together, people establish communities which embody the values of justice, democracy and human dignity. Each person is treated equitably. Each has a voice and is heard. And each person is respected for his or her own intrinsic humanity. The defining purpose of an engagement group is to bring people into right relationship. Words from the center of community values. So why am I telling you about this tonight? Well, partly I'm telling you this, I admit... In the hope that some of you will be at least a little curious about the big claims i'm making for the transformational power of these groups for individuals and communities and the wider world maybe a few of you will be as intrigued as i was and a little bit inspired by the prospect perhaps you'll read up on how to do it and you'll take the leap set up an engagement group of your own in your congregation or another setting just like i did 20 odd years ago but mainly the point i wanted to make this evening is that you can think of engagement groups as a case study in cultivating the conditions for right relationship and by considering of some of the typical features of an engagement group we can learn some lessons for life in general quite often when people participate in an engagement group for the first time or at least this was the case 15 20 years ago when they were first gaining traction in the denomination on first encountering such a group people can find them a bit awkward uncomfortable because by design they interrupt our usual habits of conversation in order to enable something better to emerge. Engagement groups are countercultural. They help us intentionally unlearn some of the harmful habits of behaviour that are prevalent in the wider culture and which undermine right relationship. These groups generally have their own covenant, a set of agreed ground rules tailored to the group by the group. At summer school, we usually offer groups a set of suggested ground rules, along with the rationale behind each of them. And then a facilitator encourages people to stick to them once they've been agreed. So in these groups, we encourage people to share their stories, their truths, their authentic selves, and to listen to each other without comment or interruption, without turning it into a heady debate coming in with their own brilliant anecdotes and in these groups when what we hear is difficult or complicated we refrain from trying to fix anything trying to make things better what we're called to be is loving witnesses to one another as the wonderful parker j palmer says when you speak to me about your deepest questions you do not want to be fixed or saved you want to be seen and heard to have your truth acknowledged and honored in my experience with these groups that have covenants ground rules they act as a sort of scaffolding or perhaps like a set of training wheels a source of stability and support to hold us upright while we get the hang of this way of being each other that is different than what we know they create a safer space where we can take a few more risks be a bit more vulnerable go a little bit deeper perhaps be more real with each other than we might typically manage over coffee on a sunday And crucially they are spaces where everybody gets an equal chance to be heard those voices which normally dominate are required to make space for those voices which are usually dominated in the heart and soul contemplative gatherings that i run which are engagement group ish they run on the same sort of principles i always say this is a space where silence is welcome and we don't rush to fill it and when we create such spaces we may discover The other voices, the ones that are usually crowded out, will find the courage to speak into the space that's been created. One other feature of engagement groups that supports right relationship is that they're based around autonomy and consent. So many of the everyday situations in which we find ourselves involve some degree, whether it's overt or subtle, a degree of compulsion or coercion. Perhaps it's not something you're particularly aware of in your own life. perhaps more obvious to those who are less privileged or less powerful in various ways those whose choices seem more limited those who feel they can't afford to say no or rock the boat by going against the flow in social situations where others have more power or status but i would imagine that most of us can think of situations occasions when we've been bounced into doing something we didn't really want to do through peer pressure Engagement groups at their best start from a point of really respecting people's autonomy and operating on the basis of genuine consent. The group facilitator might present a suggested covenant or set of ground rules to the group, but it's an invitation for each person to accept or reject or negotiate until they are happy to proceed with these terms of engagement. The facilitator explains what activities are planned so everybody knows what's coming and each can make an informed decision about whether or not they're willing to be part of it. While everyone is encouraged to join in, it's typically made explicit that this is an invitation and not an obligation. We'd say there's always a pass option. And sitting an activity out or finding an alternative way to participate is a genuine option. Participants know they're not gonna be socially punished or shamed for opting out because one of the foundations of right relationship is consent. I think there's perhaps a widespread lack of awareness of consent issues in everyday life. And I wish I had more time to unpack this tonight and give you some examples of how we might do consent better in daily life and congregational life. But for now, I just wanted to flag it as something that deserves more attention. So the point of telling you about engagement groups is this. Some of the most valuable ways of cultivating right relationship are quite hard to sustain unilaterally. In a world where our culture and our economic system train us to treat people like things, valuing others only insofar as they're useful or productive, rather than treating each person as an infinitely precious soul with the inherent worth and dignity that we so often speak of. When we intentionally and repeatedly practice deep listening, authentic sharing, making space and honouring consent in our engagement groups, all of which are practices of right relationship, practices of love in action, We begin to internalize these ways of being which spill over into the rest of our lives, our congregations, and hopefully, eventually, the wider world. We truly encounter other people, we hear their stories, and we begin to understand and appreciate the infinite variety of human identity and experience just a little bit better. We listen, we learn,
1: and we love.
2: Two shorter sections now, uh, bringing bringing this to a close with some closing uh, brief benedictions. This term, right relationship, it inevitably asks us to question where we're getting things wrong. And a quick scan of the world's news will spotlight some of the areas that I reckon most of us would agree are in need of healing. Our relationship with our planet Earth home, Our race relations, gender inequalities, attitudes towards migrants, issues of identity, our treatment of animals to mention but a few. and Some of these will be explored by other speakers in the days ahead. But in this section this evening, as we consider our relationships with ourselves and our personal relationships with others, I want to encourage a process of self-examination in life. I'm I'm not going to use that uh, famous quotation attributed to Socrates that an unexamined life is a life not worth living, because I imagine that you, like me, have met people who live simply and lovingly and don't spend hours worrying about what so-and-so said or about the choice they made yesterday. There are many ways to be human, aren't there? And an unexamined life can be a life filled with love and beauty those of us who are blessed or cursed with busy minds and turbulent emotions we are the ones who need to hone our reflective powers we are the ones who need to be aware of the gaps in our understanding and to seek actively any educational opportunities we can to understand other people better as a unitarian minister i want to trumpet the possibility of using our churches our congregations as places of exploration and education. Churches are a great resource, aren't they? And uh, they're one of the places we might just occasionally meet people who are a bit different from us. I wonder if there are people you're particularly glad to have met in a church setting. For me, it was gay men. I don't know why, but 30 years ago or so, I had never knowingly met a gay man to speak with and to listen to in depth until I started attending Unitarian events. It changed my life. It gave me new perspectives on the world. It taught me a painful and useful lesson about my oh-so-human tendency to generalize about groups of people. I'm embarrassed now to remember the gently humorous way that I was put right about some of those assumptions. And of course, before too long, Spending time with members of a minority shattered any illusions I had about our Unitarian movement and its supposed openness to all. I heard stories, true stories, of ignorance and oppression, someone losing their post as a minister because of their support for equal marriage. Gay couples ignored at social events congregations that quietly let it be known that their pulpit would never welcome someone who is openly in a gay relationship. I was nigh on 30 years ago. Now I sincerely hope such attitudes have changed, but there'll always be new issues, won't there, for us to be educated in. We are late as a denomination to be considering our inherent racism. And the work of awareness raising is unfairly left to just a few people. We're at the start of an educational process on trans issues, and we are as dangerously slow as many other parts of our society to respond appropriately to climate emergency. Minority groups rightly tell us it's not their job to educate us. So can we utilize our church resources to take on this educational work? Isn't, indeed, isn't that what this summer school week is all about, education, sharing our insights, telling our stories, bringing one another some new perspectives to consider, making space for other voices. Only by such processes of personal and collective education, processes of consciousness raising, can we develop ourselves as potentially useful allies to invisible and oppressed groups. The digital realm enables us to hear some of these other voices that most of us would not encounter in our everyday lives. We we can now read and hear of other people's experiences and their needs. And perhaps that can then strengthen us in seeking out face-to-face encounters with those who aren't like us. It can be salutary to realise what bubbles many of us live in. Sticking to groups and situations and individuals that mirror ourselves. Taking a step towards the other rather than away from them is a vital task, I believe, for our world society now. It may well be a tentative, hesitant step. It may well lead us to realize how little we actually can offer the other. But It's a step of great spiritual significance to face one who we do not know, do not understand, may even fear and genuinely hold that sufi message within our very being this too is me we are all one and all this dear friends is easier said than done to invoke love is to guard against assumptions take care with our words and practice forgiveness not as an ethereal idea but right here in the messy midst of our imperfect lives.
3: To live in right relationship with ourselves, with others, with our planet and all its inhabitants, with God or whatever we consider to be of ultimate worth, that is a beautiful thing to aspire to. And As we've just begun to explore this evening, it is potentially quite a demanding aspiration too. Don't know about you, but I'm finding life quite tough these days in a variety of ways. The last few years have been particularly hard going for many of us. So much loss, change, and uncertainty. So much conflict and instability on both a local and a global scale. It is relentless and it wears us down. And I wanted to acknowledge that as we bring this talk to a close. Because when we're struggling and feeling besieged as individuals, we might find it quite a bit harder to extend ourselves out to others. We might find ourselves instinctively drawing inward for self-preservation, like a little armadillo. So as we begin to draw this first theme talk to a close, I want to remind you of the need for balance. On the one hand, yes, let's strive to know better and do better, to change ourselves and the world. Let's do that rigorous self-examination that Sarah was just talking about and let's not be complacent. Let's do what we can to resist and disrupt the ways of the world which inhibit right relationship. But let's remember to be in right relationship with ourselves too because we need a bit of self-compassion in the midst of all this. There's a balance to be struck between, on the one hand, this wonderful, virtuous, noble striving for change and on the other hand, need for acceptance of the limits of what we can personally do especially given that the world is burning the pandemic hasn't actually gone away and many of us are variously dealing with hardship insecurity and trauma on a daily basis as the world seemingly unravels around us it is understandable that we might not always manage to put our best foot forward in these circumstances it would be understandable if we just stayed in bed and refused to come out of the duvet more days than not And yet, we aspire to something more. Despite our best efforts, we're bound to screw things up on a fairly regular basis in relationships of all kinds. We're likely to say or do the wrong thing or fail to say or do the right thing. We're likely to disappoint and hurt each other. Perfection is unattainable. And it's good to keep that in mind from the off. So this is a reminder to lay off the self-flagellation when things go awry. Life is tough enough already. Many of us know people, and it might be you, who tend towards self-sacrifice and martyrdom, who instinctively give themselves away for the sake of others, and who risk burning themselves out altogether in the process. And, most of us know people, it might be you, who tend to lean the other way, towards self-interest and away from engaging with other people's needs perhaps more often not so much out of active selfishness as a fairly passive lack of interest in other people still i suggest we each need to discern and maintain some kind of proper balance between compassion for self and compassion for others the two are inextricably linked in any case i can't help but recall these wise words of parker j palmer self-care is never a selfish act It is simply good stewardship of the only gift I have, the gift I was put on earth to offer others. Anytime we can listen to our true self and give it the care it requires, we do it not only for ourselves, but for the many others whose lives we touch. And over the next four nights, we'll hear a number of perspectives on right relationship in context. I am looking forward to the insight, inspiration and no doubt the challenges we've got coming. So in the days to come, let's keep in mind that balancing act. Let's keep our aspirations high, even if we know the messy realities of life mean we will probably fall short and let us be kind to ourselves when we do. We try, we fail and we'll try again in our attempts to practice love, justice and peace in our everyday lives. As we try to help create a better world for all still. Let us set our sights on that vision of right relationship with self, other and God. And may it be so
1: for the greater good of all.
3: We've got one more hymn. It's a short one. I know Sarah will be wincing at the fact that we're running long, but it's only a minute and a half. So let's have one last brief stirring hymn to send us off in a spirit of resolve. In this time on earth we're given. Amen. Mm-hmm.
2: in this time of life in this time on earth we're given let us resolve to live well with one another and with our wider world let us be both courageous and gentle in our dealings with one another and guide each other along paths of greater understanding and may this be for the greater good of all amen
1: Go well everyone and blessed be.
0: Well, what a wonderful reintroduction to our summer school theme talks and what a wonderful talk from the pair of you. I've got everybody on screen and I can see a lot of very impressed faces and I think I can see a desire for people to applaud. So let's just give it a moment. Thank you so much, both of you. You've given us a great deal to think about and to talk about. So I'm gonna invite everybody just to pop off for five minutes to put the kettle on, if that's what you choose to do, and then to come back in here so that we can fling you into randomly assigned small groups for a 20-minute chat about the topics Jane and Sarah have raised. You will get some prompt questions for these chats just to help them flow. Just to remind you, the chats won't be recorded and you won't be monitored, although panel members might just bob in and out to see how you're getting on because we don't like to miss out on things. After the chats we will bring you back in here so that we can bid you good night and wind the evening up. If you're leaving us at this point then you go with our blessings. I hope you have a lovely evening and we look forward to seeing you for some or all of the rest of the talks. Tomorrow we're welcoming Lizzie Kingston Harrison and Nicola Temple. So let's just pop off now for five minutes to do whatever it is we need to do, turning our screens off if that's appropriate. We'll see you back here in five minutes and fling you off into smaller groups. And good night if you're leaving us now.